You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. A special guest this week joins us. He is not a military veteran, but he is a writer who has chronicled some of the most important and influential military battles and moments throughout history. He is a New York Times bestselling author, the author of Black Hawk Down, which was one of our first guests in Matt Eversman. He has also been a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he now is the author of the latest book called Way, 1968, chronicling the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War. And my claim to fame through him is that we both graduated from Loyola College in Maryland. It is Mark Bowden on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Mark. Glad to do it. Typically, we start this podcast uh, with asking people how they got into the military. Well, obviously, you never had that chance. So how did you get into writing, and why did you become a writer? Because there are very select few people in this world who choose that career path. Well, I, you know, it was, I was stubborn about it, I guess. Uh, you know, I always loved to read. And as I was going through school, um, you know, I was uh, encouraged by various teachers uh, in my writing. They seemed to think I had a facility for it. And as I, when I went to Loyola, actually, I um, started thinking seriously about writing as a career, mostly because of um, the kinds of things I was reading. Uh, at the time in the 19, I went there from 1969 through 73, there was kind of an explosion of what was then called uh, new journalism, which were these fascinating, uh, creatively written stories in magazines like Rolling Stone and Esquire and Ramparts in the Atlantic, and uh, and I just felt like, boy, that sounds really cool. I'd I'd like to do that, uh, and that's you know what led me to doing it. Well, you got your start at the Philadelphia Inquirer. What were you covering at that point in time? Well, actually, Mark, I got my start at the Baltimore News America. No, really, there you go. Yeah, I was there for six years, and it was an interesting place for a young reporter because there was really no editorial supervision on people didn't give me assignments my stories were not edited and you know that's a bad thing when you're starting out because you make a lot of mistakes and uh, you chase down a lot of wrong alleys but the the good thing about it was that I became very self-motivating and I had an opportunity to write in the style that I wanted to write write in and experiment with things so um I was there for six years, and then I was fortunate enough to be hired by the Philadelphia Inquirer. Initially, as a suburban reporter, I was in their Wayne Bureau. Well, how did you get in touch with the military style? Because that's really what has brought you to the level of your career that you're at. Was was there something in particular about war and covering it that really drew to you? Well, I always felt that war would be a very powerful subject matter for the kind of writer that I was, which was, you know, I was telling true stories, and I was always trying to find what I call the dramatic center of a story, and given the inherent drama in a battle, which is life and death, um, and generally very high stakes otherwise, um, I had often thought um, that it would make great subject matter for someone like me. I read a lot of books growing up about World War II, um, so I was, you know, acquainted with the genre and, um, you know, I, 
but there weren't any wars. I mean, I, I worked right. <laughs> all through the 1970s and the 1980s, and it wasn't really until the Persian Gulf War that the United States, after Vietnam, was back in combat. And that was over so quickly and with such a rout that it really didn't, at least I knew of no obvious um, uh, subject matter for me. But when the Battle of Mogadishu happened in 1993, I remember reading some of the first accounts from Somalia, and one of them said at one point there were 100 American soldiers trapped in the city and surrounded. And I just remember thinking, boy, that would be a hell of a story if I could find those men who were trapped in that city and tell their story. So it was simply, it was much more of a kind of a reportorial instinct than it was any desire to become a military writer. Well, and I want to stay with Black Hawk Down for a minute because obviously it sold over 4 million copies. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It, 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 I don't know if you would characterize it as your greatest work to this point, but certainly it is your most notable um, that many people know about and given the fact that it was made into a movie and all that. But when you, when you look at that particular story, what I remember, and I was still in high school at the time when it was going on, but I vividly remember the news reports of dead American soldiers' be, bodies being dragged around on TV, and that was something that our country had never seen before. Even through Vietnam, they never showed dead American bodies, at least to my recollection. I wasn't born then, but you would have a better purview of it than I would. But my point is, is that really changed the dynamics from a media standpoint. I mean, how did that help set off your writing of the story? Well, in fact, it's the thing that triggered it. I, you know, I saw those images with everyone else, and they were shocking, um, and they were also troubling. Uh, in, in a couple of ways. I mean, one way I would, and I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way, I wondered how could American soldiers from the world's best equipped, best trained military end up being killed and, and humiliated on the streets of a, of a city in Somalia, uh, you know, which would have no army, standing army, or any sophistication at all. So I was curious to know how in the world that could have happened. And then secondly, I knew that we were in Somalia to end a famine and that, in fact, uh, the United States had, had reportedly saved upwards of 800,000 lives in Somalia. So I was genuinely uh, troubled or confused by the hostility toward American soldiers. I did, just did not understand how that situation had evolved. So for those two reasons, you know, I... I decided, and, and, and the third reason being the one I mentioned, which is that I had always felt combat would be a powerful subject for the kind of reporting and writing that I do. Uh, I just decided this is something I want to investigate. When you decided to investigate it, I remember a History Channel documentary where you tell the story so vividly that you went to the State Department to tell them that you wanted to go to Somalia and you wanted a passport to go to Somalia, and their words were to you, don't. Um, that they, they advised you against not going to Somalia. Uh, how did you really dive into that trip, and what was your mindset going in? Did you have any preconceived notions about what you were going to find? I, I really didn't know uh, exactly what I would find. I knew that it was a challenge, and, you know, I'd been a reporter for a fairly long time, so challenges didn't scare me. And the fact that, you know, the State Department encouraged me not to go um, didn't deter me. And, in fact, you know, when I told them that I was serious and that I recognized that it wasn't going to be easy, they actually helped me 
by putting me in touch with a fellow in uh, Washington who was a member of the Habergeter clan, the clan that I wanted to interview the people from that clan in, in Mogadishu. So they proved to be helpful. And, you know, I approached it the same way I approach any story that I write, um, try to figure out how to get to where I need to go, how to find the people I need to talk to. And uh, in this case, it was just a little bit more interesting and somewhat on a larger scale than usual. Just so I can understand, did you go to Somalia first before you found all the guys who were involved in the battle, or did you talk to the guys in the battle first and then go to Somalia? I went somewhere in the middle. I I had already been working for some time interviewing Americans, so I had a fairly good grasp of what happened during that battle. Um, And it was really somewhere in the early stages of doing that work that it occurred to me that um, you know, there are two sides to every story, and if no story is that more true than a battle. So in order to do the kind of book I wanted to write, I needed to go to Somalia and talk to the people who were shooting at Americans. When you were talking to the American soldiers and getting their point of view on what happened, and, and that's essentially, you know, I do the same thing, not to the level you do, but on this podcast, you know, I'm just talking to another soldier and getting their view of what happens in battle— uh, was there anything that stood out to you that these soldiers had told you? Because, again, you're talking to Army Rangers, Special Forces, Delta guys who, you know, the Army doesn't even actually say exist. But these are the level of the guys that you were talking to, some of the world's greatest warriors and most proficient guys in combat. Was there anything that stood out to you that they told you that, you know, resonated with you that said, OK, here's a common theme and a common thread that these guys all have? Well, first of all, I was very struck by how... Um articulate they were and how reflective they were. And I frankly hadn't expected to find that. And I think it's partly because I was dealing with a really elite group of young men. Um, And, you know, I'm always interested in an individual story. I mean, one of the things that I want to understand is how they ended up in the Rangers, how they ended up in Mogadishu and what were the things that motivated them. And I guess, you know, to me, I was struck by how ordinary these guys were and how decent, um, how well-motivated they were. And also, I guess at some point, I was uh, impressed by their uh, dedication and their level of training. I mean, they um, they were you know, really serious soldiers who had been very well-trained to do what they do. You tell the story so vividly in the book, and for those who haven't read it, obviously you're doing yourself a disservice if you've only seen the movie. The story of how Corporal Jamie Smith died was so touching. When I read it, I can remember reading it and actually being in tears reading it. And I don't think the movie did it the justice that you did it in the book. But to hear his comrades talk about, you know, him dying and, and other guys who were killed, did that, you know, tug at your heartstrings? Did that make it tough for you to tell that story? Well, it didn't make it tough, but it was it was very emotional, and, and uh, you know, I could certainly feel that. Uh, in fact, in that case, the case of Jamie Smith, you know, because I had interviewed his father, and it was actually one of the first things that I did in going down the path of writing Black Hawk Down, Jamie Smith's dad, Jim, um, told me that he ne- he hadn't really learned exactly how his son was killed, and so... Part of what I wanted to find out in researching the story was exactly what had happened to Jamie. And it turned out 
because his death was protracted and because of the terrible circumstances where literally his 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 comrades were putting their hands in his wound to try to staunch the bleeding and keep him alive i mean it couldn't have been a more visceral or powerful uh experience and it was something that affected everybody who was with Jamie when he died and and so you know for me i knowing jim knowing the family uh yeah that was a tough tough scene to write but i also felt it was very emblematic of warfare i mean when we when we think of war people think of you know glorious attacks and you know bombings from high altitudes and you know vicious firefights but you know really what war is about are people getting killed there are people getting severely wounded and and that experience of 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 Jamie dying of of the his friends coming to grips with the fact that they were losing him and trying desperately to save him to me really encapsulated kind of the the sense of desperation and tragic uh, violence that war entails. We spent so much time on the podcast talking about that, how the random nature of war is extremely unforgiving. Uh, and we spent so much time with, with soldiers who have, you know, people in charge who have gotten their guys killed and there's nothing that they did wrong. Uh, we, we've talked to people who got lucky and survived. I mean, it, there's just such a randomness to it that you can't account for. Uh, but yet, you're t- as you mentioned, you talk to these soldiers and they are so prepared for everything. Like, that's what our nature is, right? As people who put on a uniform, our job is to be prepared for every situation, and yet combat always seems to find situations that you're not prepared for. Yeah, it's true. And, and I think one of the really disturbing things for the men who are, and women now, who are caught up in combat is that no matter how well-trained you are, uh, no matter how carefully you go about your, your work, uh, you can be killed at any moment. And, you know, the goofballs are killed uh, as, alongside of tre- tremendously professional soldiers. So it's like, you know, merit doesn't enter into it at a certain point. It's like a really a horrible death lottery. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many uh, veterans of combat walk around with feelings of guilt, because they've seen people who they admired, people who they felt were better than they were, at being soldiers um, get killed while they survived. And, and I think, you know, if, if you've been through that, you feel a certain amount of guilt about having survived. And you're, I think, a little bit afraid of, of more afraid of the world when you understand how random things are. Final thought on Black Hawk Down, Mark. When you wrote it, did you have a feeling it was going to be what it became? No, not at all. Uh, you know, I pursued that book uh, only because I wanted to do it. And I wanted to to try and write a very dramatic, accurate account of a battle. And, and I, I had a hard time even convincing my editors at the Philadelphia Inquirer that it was an interesting story. And then when I did have a draft of the book, it was turned down by every major publisher in New York. Um, I and I was thinking, frankly, more along the lines of finding a specialty publishing house, something like the Naval Institute Press, where it would have a short run, and you know I would have something that I would be proud of, that I could put on my shelf. But beyond that, I had no 
commercial expectations for it. Well, obviously, again, I, I, millions of people have seen the movie. Millions of people have, have read the book as well, and, and it is one of the finest chronicles of combat, uh, at least that I've ever read, and I've done a lot of reading on military history. So uh, obviously Thank we you. congratulate you for that. But let's move on a little bit because you continue to even dive into other Let's just call them militant battles. Everything from uh, Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug lord. Uh, you wrote about D-Day. Uh, you even you wrote about uh, the Finnish, which was about the killing of Osama bin Laden. When you take on all these tasks, uh, some of them, you know, big battles, as you talk about D-Day, some of them just more finite, uh, you know, instances throughout military history. Is there a common thread that you see uh, among soldiers through all these things? Yeah, I mean, I think that we ask soldiers to do very difficult and dangerous things. And, um, you know, and they're courageous enough and um, loyal enough to their country to uh, to do them. And I, I find that admirable, noble, and uh, I, you know, that's a common thread in all of these people. The book I just wrote way 1968, you know, about these Marines who were just caught up in one of the worst urban battles in modern history, Uh, you know, just day after day, after having seen their friends killed and wounded and having survived for a day, would be sent right back out the next day. And they kept getting up and they kept going. And it's really hard to imagine, much less appreciate the, um, the courage and dedication, the selflessness of of what they were doing and what they went through. So those are the things that really strike me. Again, you mentioned Way 1968, the book that is out this month uh, that you guys can get, and we'll get into all where you can get it in a moment, Mark. But, you know, that is such a a huge project. Uh, the, the, The concept of the Vietnam War to a lot of people, and, you know, we have yet to get a Vietnam vet on this podcast. We've struggled with it, and frankly, we've tried. We just haven't found a lot of people who are willing to talk. Uh, and I think that's interesting because I, part of it, I think, lies in the fact, Mark, that the view of the Vietnam War, especially now that we're so far away from it, was that it was a loss. It was a waste of time. I mean, people spend lots of time on radio and television comparing what's going on in Afghanistan to the Vietnam War. And at the end of the day, nothing really came of it. And we waste a lot of time and money and precious American lives to really get nothing out of it. I think that's the view of Vietnam. And again, all of it was before I was born. So I only know what I've read. But. Do you find that when you talk to those Vietnam-era Marines and soldiers that it was harder to pull stories out of them than it was other soldiers that you've talked to? No, I didn't. Um, You know, I think for a number of reasons. I benefit, frankly, Mark, by the success that I've had, especially (laughs) with Black Hawk Down, so that people take me seriously. Yes, you're better at this than I am. (laughs) Well, and I'm also been at it longer. You know, I'm more in the age group. I was a sophomore in high school when the Battle of Hawaii happened. I was 16 years old. And a lot of these guys fighting were just like 18 or 19. So we're, you know, when you get older like me, whether you're 65 or 69, it hardly makes any difference. And so I I approached them as someone who remembered uh, those days and remembered the war. And, and I think as someone who could appreciate how just about everyone who fought there came out of it feeling differently about the experience. And one of the things I do at the end of the book is I go back to some of the characters who are threaded throughout the narrative and ask them now, many years later, how they feel about having served in Vietnam. And their answers are 
are fascinating and various. I mean, some are very proud of their service. I have one Marine who's actually ashamed of having fought in Vietnam. We have some who are angry about the decisions that were made in Washington and in some cases angry at decisions that were made by their superior officers while they were there. And it, just as with anything else, you know, the, the greater the number of people you talk to, the greater num number of opinions and perspectives you get on it. I think one of the problems that you might have in attracting Vietnam vets to talk about it is that it remains a very uh, emotional and contentious uh, issue for many Americans, particularly for those of us who lived through it. And, uh, you know, I think after a lifetime of, of uh, you know, trying to explain yourself, you eventually just get tired of it and you realize nobody cares as much as you do. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I, I The variety of opinions that you just talked about is some people are ashamed and some people are proud. Is that because of what they particularly experienced or is that more at a kind of level of, as I mentioned, a lot of people view Vietnam as a loss, as a disappointment that accomplished nothing? Or is that just something because of what they particularly went through? I think it's both. I mean, it, it, different people, you know, bring... Um, a different level of analysis. I find that some of the um, some of the men who were young officers at the time, who were college educated, they can talk very uh, uh, intelligently about military decisions and political decisions that shaped the conduct of that war and eventually, you know, lost the war. Um, and then you get individual soldiers who maybe are less invested uh, in the um, in the overview but who are reacting to what they saw and what they endured. One common thread, though, is a sense of betrayal, a sense that their leaders, their political leaders, and in some cases their military leaders, and in many cases the American public, um, abandoned these young men who were, they believed, doing the right thing and were risking their lives on behalf of their country. And I think if you do that and you don't feel that anyone cared, or even that you would be um, criticized for having done so is a very lifelong uh, ordeal. It's interesting you bring that up because I was going there next. Uh, you, again, you talked about the combat in Mogadishu. You, you were basically fighting civilians with AK-47s who had no combat experience but just had to survive. Uh, you look at what we have going on now in the war on terror, even against the, the Viet Cong and everything else, even it was a more a more organized fighting force. I can remember distinctly on my first deployment to Iraq, being in the chow hall and just watching the news and constantly seeing the reports of what goes up. And I'm sitting here going, I'm busting my tail every day trying to stay, survive to help build a school or to help make the Iraqi army better or to to give some infrastructure to a society that has none. But yet none of that ever gets talked about on TV, and it's frustrating, and, it's, and it makes you angry. Uh, and, and, and the feeling that politics goes out the window the minute that first bullet whizzes by your head is something I don't think anybody who hasn't been in combat can understand. But yet all of us wearing the uniform are at the mercy of those people making those decisions. In your experiences covering different military battles and different combat— is that a common thread that the people making the decisions really are the ones who need to be more in touch with what goes on on the ground level? Yes, absolutely. And you saw it in, um, you know, frankly, the soldiers in Mogadishu were far better led than the ones I wrote about in Vietnam. And even with that, you saw that the commanders who were trying to steer the battle from helicopters had very little sense 
of what was happening down on the street. Right. Uh, and I think in Vietnam, it was really one of the first wars where, because of the sophistication of American telecoms, you had um, commanders who were distant from the fighting, who were very often making life and death decisions about the men who were in the middle of the battle. And and now often those decisions were really wrong, were bad. And there, there's actually a couple moments in the story of Huey where you have army cavalry commanders who opt not to uh, command their troops from a helicopter, which is what most of them were doing in Vietnam, and instead preferred to get down on the ground and walk with their with their men because they they valued having that um, ground level perspective and to be sharing, you know, the ordeal or the experience with the men they were commanding. I think that, you know, that speaks well of those commanders who did it. And and frankly, some of them in the book emerge as the most uh, heroic and admirable figures. And you know, what's irritating too. And again, I can say this freely because I experienced it, but you know, the president or the vice president making a two day trip to Iraq does not give them the view that they need to understand what's going on. I mean, that, that's, that's equating in my world to, you know, a, a, a couple who's in trouble in their marriage. You know, the counts are sitting down with them one time and thinking they can solve all of their problems. You don't get the full scope of exactly what's going on unless you're there day in and day out. And yet, in the war on terror, at least multiple times, oh, this, the, the Secretary of Defense is coming in, or the Vice President, or Senator this, or Congressman that. It's nice that you make the trip, but in reality, it doesn't give you any grander view. But now you think that you're in a position to be able to make decisions, and I, I still can't understand for the life of me why they don't defer more to commanders on ground. Is that something that you found is, is a, a shocking, kind of mind-puzzling thing for you? Well, I mean, in the hands of an inept leader... Yes, uh, you know that can, that can lead to really stupid decisions. But in a well-run organization, obviously, if you're the president of the United States, you have a lot of things on your plate, and you, you don't have time to be, you know, spending days and weeks and months in a mountain outpost in Afghanistan, understanding what those men are going through. You rely on their uh, on the military commanders who are on the ground, and on their commanders to be giving you an accurate picture of of what's going on and if the organization works the way it should work you know those decisions should move up the chain in a sensible way i also think it's important to remember that um you know political leaders have to make decisions um that are broader than strictly military decisions so for instance you know i remember reading a story about uh, barack obama when he was touring with david petraeus in iraq and Petraeus was outlining, you know, military needs, and and this was before Obama became president. But Obama telling him, well, you know, I hear you, but we've also I've also got to be concerned about Afghanistan, and I've got to be concerned about you know the Pacific Rim and what our troops are doing there, and I'm going to have to make decisions based on, you know, all of these factors, not just the the all-consuming one in front of you. So I think, frankly, you know. That's part of the difficulty of being the top commander is that you have to weigh a lot more than, you know, the guy who's concerned about protecting his outpost on a mountaintop. 
As a writer right now, I don't know if it's fair to like characterize you as a regular member of the media as we typically think of it, but in your time as a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, clearly you were a member of the media. And even though that was a long time ago, you've seen media's influence change and you've seen what they've been able to do as it pertains to combat over the years that you've covered it. How much has media influence played a role in decisions that are made and the way we look back on the decisions that are made? Well, I am a, definitely a card-carrying member of the uh, mainstream <laughs> media, and, and I remain one, uh, and proudly so. I I feel that, you know, in a democracy, journalism and uh, the press, uh, the media today, which is just about everything, everybody with a cell phone is a member of the media, um, plays, you know, a, a, a critical role in how um, any sort of military action unfolds. And I think that's always been true. I, I believe, you know, any American military intervention has a kind of built-in stopwatch. Uh, the American public will tolerate it uh, for only so long and will endure losses for only so long. And I think it takes tremendously skilled political leadership to rally public support for any sort of long-term military operation conducted by a democracy. If you if you live in an authoritarian state, it's not a problem because, you know, you don't know anything about what's going on and leaders don't listen to you anyway. But I think it's one of the complicating factors of a democracy is that you get um, – the public is getting information from many sources, um, independent ones, some well-informed, some not, uh, and they have to sort of, sort of feel their way. And I think those – that dynamic plays a role in every modern conflict uh, that the United States is engaged in. I asked that question because as it pertains to your latest book, Way 1968 and the Tet Offensive, which I don't remember how it was characterized. Again, I, I say that I wasn't born, but I know just from reading it was a major battle throughout the war, but yet in kind of reading some excerpts from your book and, and getting some background on it, I get a sense that it was seen as a failure. Did you find in your discoveries and in your writing of this book that it wasn't a failure? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define uh, victory or, or, or defeat. Um, it's you the know, ultimate in a, question, in narrow, right? Yeah, in a narrow sense, uh, the city of Wei was, was taken by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. That was a failure. Uh, the United States military and the South Vietnamese military had no idea that the enemy had amassed 10,000 troops outside of that city and was able to take it in a matter of hours with, with only a few minor skirmishes. That it was a huge intelligence failure, so there's a defeat. Then the United States came back and over a very brutal month fought and took the city back, um, destroying 80% of the city. Uh, Roughly 10,000 people were killed, most of them civilians, and they eventually wrested control of the city back from the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Okay, so call that a victory. You know, we took the city back. But less than three or four years later, the entire American military effort uh, collapsed, and the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong came back into Hue, and they now own the whole country. So in the larger sense, it clearly, clearly was a defeat. So if you take a look at the at the impact of the Tet Offensive, of which the takeover of Hue was a central part, uh, the impact of that was to 
greatly diminish American support, popular support for the war, and also, frankly, to seriously undermine the confidence that the South Vietnamese had in their government in Saigon. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're just as capable as I am of taking a look at those dynamics and deciding for yourself whether what happened in Hue was a uh, victory or a defeat. In my book, I write it, it actually, to me, makes more sense to try to assess how, how much each side lost. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, in all the things, discussions we've had in this podcast, we've never really d- dove into the concept of a win versus a loss when it comes to battle. I mean, a, a lot of us, if, you, if we escape alive, I guess we consider that a win, right? I mean, that's essentially the measure that we have. If we, if we get everybody back alive, then we feel like it's a win. But in your writings and in your discoveries, do you try to stay away from that, characterizing something as a win or a loss? Do you try to stay away from assigning blame or anything like that? Do you find that it's it's hard to do that? Yeah, I think in order to be fair, um, you have to try to understand all the different perspectives that are involved. And I think readers are very smart and capable of making up their own minds once they're given um, all the information they need. Uh, if anyone ever asks me, you know, I, I can tell them what I think. But frankly, you know, when you're apprised of, of what happened, your opinion is just as valuable as mine. I, I generally don't try to do something as simple as as award victory or defeat to one side or the other, because, as I said, it it depends entirely on how you define those terms. When I remember just about Black Hawk Down, a lot of the soldiers who were pulled out of there were angry that they were. Uh, because they and they felt like it was a win. They felt like they would have went back in and leveled the city the next day, and you know Mike Durant would have been caught the very you know been brought back to him the very next day, and so on and so forth. Uh, do you get a sense that those guys felt like it was the opportunity for a win was taken away from them? Well, I, I understand how they feel, and in, in the in the way that they define uh, success or failure is in terms of the goals of their mission. Uh, and it is a fact that on the day, October 3rd, 1993, when they set out to capture these two uh, warlords, that they were successful. They captured them. Uh, in the process, they lost 18 young soldiers, and they kicked off a political furor in the United States, in, in part because President Clinton and his administration hadn't really leveled with the American people and hadn't explained the risks that were involved. So, you know, on, on the one hand, they accomplished their mission. On the other hand, the, the level of violence and the deaths ended up causing the, our American political leadership to pull the plug on the entire mission. So how do you calculate that? Is that a success or is that a failure? It's a, it's a little of both, actually. Are you surprised at all the connective tissue that's gone on in combat. I mean, think 1993. We didn't know really there was a war on terror going on because it wasn't happening to us yet. But in reality, you know, that was the year the World Trade Centers were bombed for the first time. What went on to Mogadishu went on. And then, you know, you lead up to everything else that goes on prior to 9-11. Are you surprised about all that connective tissue that has showed up? No, not really. I think if you study history, you realize it's a continuum and, you know, one thing leads to the next. And I think when you de- dig deeply into stories. For instance, you know, I I wrote about the um, Iran hostage crisis in a book called Guests of the Ayatollah, and as part of that, I wrote about the failed rescue mission that was undertaken to bring those hostages back. And the failure of that mission is what led to the creation of 
Delta Force yep. and the special operations community. And so you saw then in Black Hawk Down how sophisticated those uh, soldiers have become and those units have become. The, the very existence of the, uh, um, uh, the special operations task force of 160, the helicopter pilots who fly out of uh, uh, Fort Campbell, that they exist as a unit because of the failure of the helicopter pilots and the Iran rescue mission and the decision that the military really needed skilled pilots and they needed the kind of um, aircraft that could conduct these pinpoint special operations missions. So, you know, that book led to a better understanding of what was going on in, in Mogadishu. And then, uh, and then my work on the, on the story in Somalia led to the realization that American forces were involved in hunting down Pablo Escobar in Colombia at roughly the same time as the Battle of Mogadishu, which led to my book, Killing Pablo. So, yeah, you, start, you, you see these connections, and if you're a smart reporter, I think you follow them. And then, obviously, you wrote the finish, which was, you know, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Uh, you know, which tells the story of how, in fact, you know, computer technology and, and metadata and software has been integrated into the uh, special operations community. And, you know, the success in finding bin Laden is a tribute to how sophisticated they've become in that area. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about the politics of the whole thing. And I will commend you, because I thought, at least when I read the finish, one of the finer points of that book, and if you hadn't read it, I highly recommend you pick it up, was the way you detailed the political battle that went on to actually make the decision to finally do it. I thought you did a very fair and accurate job on both sides of really portraying how those discussions went down and how that decision was arrived upon. Uh, because, again, just, just we talked before about so many political decisions that are made that affect people in combat. That was one that I think, obviously, if we're going to characterize as a win, worked out very well. It did, and, and, and I think it's a good example of the process working the way you hope it would, uh, with very smart uh, military and intelligence people uh, working closely with the political leadership to make an informed decision. And, and to me, you know, when I looked at the story of uh, finding and killing bin Laden, I saw it as, as I was saying earlier, this um, uh, integration of computer technology and metadata into solving the problem of finding a person hiding somewhere in the world. Uh, and I also saw it, frankly, as a, uh, a story about two men, uh, one a dedicated terrorist, Osama bin Laden, and the other a Chicago politician who's elected to the White House who has to ultimately make the decision to kill you know, bin Laden. And so the story of Obama's arriving at the decision that he made paralleling the story of Osama bin Laden uh, ending up being the target of that mission, uh, to me is what I thought was the dramatic center of that story. All right, and finally, again, the title of your latest book, Way 1968, and Way, by the way, is spelt like Hue, H-U-E, but pronounced Way 1968, about the Tet Offensive. Where can people get the book? Where can they find it, Mark? It's at every bookstore in America, and it's also available online at the you know Amazon and Barnes & Noble and any place you want to go buy a book, you'll find it. 
Well, again, I have to thank you so much. Not only have you chronicled some of the most important military moments throughout history, but uh, you being part of this podcast for us is just a huge honor. A uh, huge fan of your work, and I hope you continue to do it for as long as you can do it, because certainly uh, your perspective, your experience, and your knowledge uh, of combat and, and how to chronicle it fairly properly, accurately, and emotionally, I think, uh, is one of the finest skills that I've ever seen in writing. So I certainly appreciate all of your time and all that you've done to, uh, to highlight military members and the great efforts uh, and the great things that they have done throughout history. But uh, sincerely, just so much thanks for being part of the podcast. Oh, you're generous, Mark. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.